Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Simon Holmeischer, which I think I might have pronounced almost correctly. And we're going to be talking about value, values in CDR and its modelling. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much. So, um, uh, yeah, two questions before we get started. Firstly, did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, you did well. Simon Holmeischer. Uh, so okay, jolly good. Well. And sec- secondly, how well is your team doing in the World Cup? <laughs> I, I stopped following though they they might have been been out by now I, th- I think it's certainly possible that that's happened so uh yeah but uh anyway moving on to the more academic matters do you want to start off by telling us where you study and what your position is and your um your kind of career trajectory has been sure yeah happy to do so so I'm a PhD student at the University of Bielefeld at the philosophy department. So my focus is on climate ethics and the philosophy of climate science. So where, where is that university? I've not heard of it before. So it's in Bielefeld. This is a smaller city in yeah northwest of Germany, like three hours west of Berlin. Okay. Yeah. So sort of near kind of the Hamburg area, right? Yeah. South of Hamburg. Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. Quite a Fine. big university and, though. And so your, your background is philosophy that's your is that where your what your undergrad was in exactly I, I did undergraduate studies in business engineering and philosophy and then did my master's in philosophy and focused on climate ethics and that's a, re- that's a remarkable combination of subjects i mean i've never heard of anybody subject sub- studying philosophy alongside business and engineering yeah and they're, they're two two subjects with no soul at all right no, so you can't, no. you can't What's I, did, I did business and engineering and i was kind of actively encouraged not to philosophize about anything during that time so it must have been a bit of a weird combination really um, well yeah funny enough uh, it now comes back together in studying the ethics of integrated assessment modeling so but no i didn't know that beforehand that it would come together in the end so we had another podcast that covered a similar set of topics and i you know when i thought values in modeling what's all this unholy nonsense when we were talking on the podcast, I realized there's actually quite a lot of value in bed because if you're getting the model solved for something like GDP, for example, kind of optimizing GDP, you're making a statement that GDP matters to you more than, for example, wealth distribution or endangered species or things like that. And that's you know how I understood it from the previous one. We'll go into that in a bit more detail in due course, a lot more detail, in fact. But uh, do you want to start off by giving us the title of the paper that you're here to discuss? Yes. So the paper of my, the title of my paper was on or is on economic modeling of carbon dioxide removal, values, bias, and norms for good policy advising modeling. Okay. And when you're talking about the models that you're discussing in this, are you talking about mainly kind of IAM sort of hybrid techno-economic models, or are you talking something that's much more focused on the, you know, the earth system modeling? What, what's your, what's your, what's your focus? What's, what's the nature of the modeling that you're discussing in in this field yeah so when i speak about models it's referring to integrated assessment models and integrated assessment models shall i say a bit more about the models or yeah i mean we've had several people on the show talking about iams i should confess i'd never really understood what they are or about despite the fact i'm actually working on papers involving iams it's amazing how you can work on it in a team paper and genuinely contribute to the work that that paper does but yet still at the same time be utterly bewildered by what other people might see as key parts of the model so if i can explain to you what i think an iam is so what you're doing you've got a typically a very simple climate model and you're combining that with a relatively simple model of the economy then you're trying to get that model to solve to deal with a set of climate policies in in a certain type of way so a kind of question might be for example how much mitigation do we do to optimize the economy so you're quite, you can either do an awful lot of mitigation which would cost you a lot of money you reduce consumption in the economy and you're assuming in classical economics that people consume less and are less happy as a result so we sacrifice something good about our lives we have fewer playstations and less crack and we don't enjoy our lives as much but then future generations don't die of tropical diseases in sweden as a result of our less profligate consumption and the model is kind of solving to uh, to work out how humanity runs itself over the course of typically a century or so that's a kind of glib and facetious 
summary of an IAM. Is that fair to say that I got that at least 30% right? Yeah, I think that's that's a good rough summary, though. I would add one thing. So there, as you said, there are many ethics involved in this kind of modeling. So the models that I focus on process, dynamic process IAMs, and there is one distinction that is important. There's cost-benefit models, and they try to like solve for optimal climate targets. They like give you, in the end, what kind of climate target would be economically optimal. Uh, but the models that I look at and the models that like my paper is focused on, they take a given climate goal as an input and then optimize towards this goal. So they look for optimal and feasible pathways to stay within, for example, two degrees Celsius. As given okay, by the so, so you're sort of targeting the model, you're telling the model what output you want, and then the model is trying to create a pathway to that. It's not because the other way of doing it is to get the model to actually solve and say, well, how much warming should we tolerate? And exactly. the model might say, well, future generations don't matter very much. Therefore, we're going to allow you to consume an awful lot in the short term, because what really matters is how happy people are today. And you know, future generations can sort themselves out, right? That's, you know, that's a way that the model might work. But what you're describing is you've got this fixed target pathway and then the model is trying to find the cheapest and most efficient way to meet that by balancing things like consumption reduction, uh, carbon intensity of consumption and spending on things like carbon removal, right? That's the that's the way that you're, you're saying that your models are working, which is a somewhat different because it's not trying to it's not it's not deriving the climate path from the model it's specifying a climate path or a climate destination and then you are the model is telling you you know giving you more detail about how you might get there exactly exactly so so one can also think about it in the way that the climate impact side is just like put outside of the model and not like solved within the model not evaluated within the model okay so help me understand this so you're primarily here to talk about the values embedded in the model so if I can just speculate on where I think this thing might lie. So you you have a model which is based on spending money on carbon dioxide removal or restraining consumption. And, and, and your model might, for example, say, well, what, what we're trying to do is to get lots of GDP in this model. We want a lot of economic activity. OK, so it's trying to maximize GDP. And so you might have a model which says, well, what we really want is a bunch of rich Americans driving around in big flashy cars that cost lots of money. And then poor people who have got land that they're subsistence farming in the global south, they're not very important because they're not earning very much money. So they can go off and leave their land and then we'll plant lots of trees where they used to farm. And so the rich Americans can have their big flashy cars because big flashy cars are inherently good thing because our model solves for those. That's the kind of ethical conundrum that you're describing in your model. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the question that I wrestle with. Yes, exactly. Okay. So um, you're saying that it isn't an optimal solution, that rich people get more stuff. I mean, that's heretical. The idea that maybe the best solution to the world's problems isn't for people who are already wealthy to have even more stuff. I mean, I, you know, yeah. that's pretty, pretty, pretty freaking out there, you weird hippie. <laughs> so well so what i'm saying is here so I, I look at this technology like just like isolate there are, there are different value questions as you as you were arising to but i look at like carbon dioxide removal techniques in in specific and I, what i argue is that they change the risk pattern that we find in these mitigation pathways and that this is an unappreciated value judgment that is arising because it like in, in including large-scale cdr into the model um involves shifting risk to future generations and also involves change in the global pattern of of, of risk so there's okay well let me let me just sort of put some context onto this first so that we can kind of get everyone on the same page so what you're basically saying to put things crudely you can either have one of two situations so you're either rapidly constraining consumption in the near term so we're not relying on cdr but we are relying on lots of mitigation and so you can't have your big shiny new suv because it creates lots of pollution okay or you have another model that says yes you can have your big shiny suv but your grandchildren are going to have to build a big carbon dioxide remove removal machine to deal with the consequence of this that's sort of crudely the sort of economic conundrum that your model is trying to solve, but obviously with a lot more subtlety than I've just described it, right? Exactly. These are the two like like extreme scenarios that you could... Like, okay. So, so my, my understanding of this is uh, the model 
regards this. You know, there's some maths under the hood of the model. And one of the bits of maths that the model will rely on is a discount rate, right? So the, the model is uh, is discounting the experience of future generations in a way which is sensible if you're looking at a return on cash invested in a bank, but not so in not so sensible if you're looking at things that matter more to people. So, you know, people might say, well, look, if I've got $100 and I put it in the bank for a year, I want $105 at the end of the year to make it worth me investing the money in a bank. And that that's something that we can intuitively understand. We can agree that there's logic to deferring consumption that people want to get paid for deferring consumption and therefore the discount rate matters. But if you if you looked at that from a kind of genetic point of view and say well look i can either murder one of your children or two of your grandchildren uh then you don't think well the grandchildren are just a bit less important you know no one no one feels comfortable making that kind of trade because the discount rate doesn't apply to things like you know your relatives and it doesn't apply to things like endangered species in the same way it doesn't it's not logical for you to say well you know, I'm going to go and buy a big SUV this year because it's pretty cool. And then we won't have any lions next year. You know, that 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 intuitive trade-off doesn't doesn't feel as comfortable as earning some interest in the bank, but it stems from the same kind of economic and anal- analytical wellspring, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So the and discount then- rate in these models informs the way the burden of mitigation are distributed and this is just a whole different question than looking at the interest rate on the market yes okay but you're but what i'm saying to, to start off with you one of the one of the variables that you're considering in this is you've got to understand the, the way that you value the present more than the future and you, you have to put some kind of discount rate in the model because people genuinely do expect interest on money in the bank and and therefore you can't make your model makes sense without considering the fact that people do have to see interest on money put in the bank, right? But there's more to this than that. And that's where some of the um, the analysis gets a bit messy or lost in the inability to compare these conflicting framings, where in some types of human activity, we think it's perfectly logical to have a discount rate, such as, for example, on our financial savings but we don't consider it to be logical when it comes to our children for example right so there's a a sort of a value clash in there but there's also the other economic aspect of risk and certainty yeah so you know one way that this can manifest itself in the model is that as climate gets further and further away from the baseline there's more and more risk inherent in the system because you i bet you are well able to predict the risk in a climate model when it's close to baseline and the further from that baseline it gets the more difficult it is to predict the behavior of the model because it's further and further away from the conditions you understand well when you develop the model and i think that quite a lot of what you're referring to is that you have both climate and techno-economic risk moving forward because as you go forward in time with a, a model which is based on large amounts of cdr you have a complexity in that you have less certainty over what the climate system will do as you take it further away from baseline and you have less certainty on the performance of techno-economic systems because you're relying on magic pixie dust that hasn't been invented yet right to put it crudely to put it crudely yes so so the cdr techniques that just involve a lot higher uncertainty so there are some like some some plans now out there some demonstration that they're just nearly close to the amounts that is assumed in the model so they the models assume a really high build-up of these technologies that for many people many people say it's just not feasible or very uncertain if it will be actually um, turn out this way and so how does when it comes to modeling right you know you've got this model how is how is this value question how is this this concern actually embodied in the model what what am i doing as a modeler which is allowing the model to either ignore or address this moral quandary now i know i know the discount rate i get the discount rate right so the discount rate is just like you know what interest you get on your savings fundamentally or how much interest you pay on the money you borrow and uh, most people find that pretty intuitive because they've got savings or a credit card and they get it but techno-economic risk within the model is isn't the same is there's a lot you know it's, it's not 
it's not as relatable. How 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 are models embedding techno-economic risk in terms of a number or an equation, or are they just completely ignoring it? So it's really hard to, to speak about the model because there's just like very different models out there and they, they show different performances of BECs. But in general, there's just certain assumptions on how fast the technologies can build up, how steep the learning rate is, so that's how like how fast the costs for certain technologies okay. decline. Okay, so, so let, let, let's break this down then, because you've just introduced two important concepts there. So the first one is like, basically, how many widgets can you make? If you if you, if your widget factory is making carbon dioxide removal machines, then it can't work infinitely fast, right? You've got to build the factory, and then you've got to make a certain number of widgets a year, and those widgets all will reduce or remove carbon dioxide, because it might be like an electric car widget or it might be a carbon dioxide removal machine widget in any event you've got to build widgets it costs a certain amount to build the factory it costs a certain amount to wait the widget it costs a certain amount to run that widget for a year and the consequence of running that widget for a year is that a certain amount of carbon dioxide either doesn't enter the atmosphere or gets removed from the atmosphere okay and then you're saying that you've got a learning rate on top of that which is the sort of familiar to people from Moore's law or in the case of solar panels, Swanson's law. So you like a computer that you would buy in the 1970s is many orders of magnitude less powerful than a computer that you could buy today because you people are just better at making better stuff for less money and using less resources, right? That's what you're saying. And 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 the learning rate is, you know, how Moore's law is it? So how how many what's the relationship between an increase in the scale of a technology's deployment and the price of that technology. So when you double the amount of electric cars in the world, does electric car halve in cost or does it fall a lot more slowly, a lot more quickly than the relationship that I've just set out there? That's what you're fundamentally describing, yeah? Yes, let me come back to economic costs in just a second. Like, There's a third parameter that is often, because a lot of the CDR, so this carbon dioxide removal, is based on bioenergy. So it's just like crops using CO2 from, like dragging CO2 from the atmosphere, and then it's used, and then it's stored on the ground, and this way negative emissions are produced. This is called BECS, like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And this has been, for the most part, the most prominent technique in, in the models. And so there's this big land use um, aspect of it. So a lot of models have also some, some modules that crossly simulate the, the, the land use of the global on, on a global scale. So this is a third yeah, so it's, that it's, is necessary it's, it's, to model CDR. Yeah, so you, I mean, just to sort of give a bit of flesh on your bones, I was watching a video today about how the Drax power station in the UK is part of a supply chain that comes from um, the southern US states where they're chopping down forests. And then the theory is that horrible little bits of wood that you can't use for anything goes into the Drax power station and is burned for fuel. And Drax ultimately says that they're going to capture that carbon dioxide to make BECs. And the video today was looking at the, um, the where the wood actually comes from. Uh, and although it wasn't, I'm not certain that that particular wood ended up in Drax, but it was showing that it was actually whole trees rather than trimmings. And it was coming from land, which was going to be made into an industrial estate and wasn't going to be replanted. So you know, there, there's a lot of questions about the, the practical impacts. Now, I know that's not the level of IAMs. They operate at a much higher level than talking about an individual uh, uh, stand of trees over a few acres. but that's a microcosm of a broader issue with these um, uh, sort with the sourcing of uh, the wood products that are used, the wood pellets that are used for these Bex facilities. And as I said earlier in the conversation, you've got potential for subsistence farmers to be shoved off their land so that fat Americans can drive around in SUVs. Um, and and you're basically saying that there's a value judgment in that. That you know, how do we value the you know the natural world how do we value the land of people who are outside the economic system you know if i if i grow a chicken but i don't sell that chicken then does does can the economist actually take account of that in the calculations because it's not part of the global economic system it doesn't have a dollar value if someone picks a mushroom in the forest and just eats it straight away or you know they have a chicken scratching around in their backyard that never goes to market it's not seen by the global economic system 
So how do we actually value it? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's so it, it is very land land intense, and so they put some restrictions. Like of course, like different models do it differently, but they put some restrictions on how much land is available. But just like in a, in a very gen general term, like in Europe, for example, there is not that much land available for such bio and energy. But of course, like in in in, well, that's in why we such always... South America, there is a lot more land available, not more yeah. potential consumed, I mean, but... and so this is not evaluated like directly in in the models but just optimized on a global level well british british people for centuries have been outsourcing their moral compromises right so exactly. we we ha have had a, a genteel and well-ordered society but we're happy to take the products of slavery in the or, or labor of questionable freedom in the in the form of sugar tea and rum which has uh, formed a, an important part of the Brit british economy for quite some time and um i think we're probably not being very much different about bex you're chopping down trees in the southern united states so we might be very unhappy to see being chopped down in the uk and out of sight out of mind we seem to be quite happy having those uh, moral problems offshored for us and what you're i think you're drawing attention to is the way that this is handled by iams and sometimes these assumptions could be quite deeply embedded in climate negotiations or because of the assumptions that are used to make the IAMs, right? Yes, exactly. So so exactly. So there's there's like this ten like just like this general shift of of risk to 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 poorer nations that is happening in like climate change overall and like just like shifting risk to the future, shifting risk to to other nations. Um, how exactly does that happen in the model? What what is programmed because the model is just some computer code, right? So what what is programmed into the model? What does the model do that expresses a willingness to chop down some forest in South America? What would I write in my model that would say I quite like chopping down South American forests? I think so it's not it's, so it's not so much about what you write in the model but what you don't write in the model. So let me explain this. So so the these models like many models at least like optimize global cost um cost on a global level. So they look for cost efficient pathways to stay within the climate goals on on like over the whole century and over the whole globe. And so if you introduce CDR into the models on a large scale, they become economically in the models very valuable because they allow you to kind of like smoothen the mitigation curve and shift mitigations burdens into the far future where it is assumed to be very much more cheap. And how, because, and how, um, how exact? Okay, so, so let me... Let me explain what I think you've just explained to me. So if you've got an experience curve that shows a steep decline in costs, so you, you show that carbon dioxide removal might, for example, cost you $2,000 a ton now, but in, say, 50 years, then it might only cost you $50 a ton because of the reduction in cost that's expected as a result of this learning effect, like buying a computer in 2022 versus buying a computer in 1970. You're going to get a much better computer for the dollar value that you spend right even though the the dollar value might be very similar because people have got a similar budget and therefore they'll spend you know they might spend a thousand dollars on quite a good computer they might spend that in 1970 or they might spend it in 2022 but they might get an enormously better computer in 2022 as a result and what you're basically saying is that the the value of your dollar in terms of kilos of carbon dioxide removed is going to be so much higher in the future that it makes little or no sense to invest heavily in the practical operation of carbon dioxide removal in the present because it's so expensive and therefore deferring that reduction in carbon dioxide removal from your engineered CD CDR plant makes a lot more sense because you are spending the money at a time when it's more efficient to do so. Exactly. And like these these systems like take time to build up. And so but, but isn't but hold on, isn't isn't that inherently buggy? Because the thing is embedded in the learning rate is the understanding that that cost reduction comes from learning by doing. There's 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 a there's an effect that results from the deployment of the technology. Okay. And so if you're holding back on deploying the technology, where does your learning come from? It doesn't like, you know, it, it doesn't come down like manna from heaven. You know, computers aren't cheaper and faster now than they were in 1970 just because of some external effect. It's, it's come from a growing industry that every year gets just a tiny fraction better at doing X, Y, and Z. And then the end result is that we end up with better computers. And if you don't buy any computers, that industry doesn't exist and you don't get the learning effect. So how does that, how do the models 
the way that you're describing it seems to suggest that the models don't take that into account. But that seems to be inherent in the cost reduction. So they must take that into account. And so how are they not taking into account? Well, well not taking into account kind of what? Sorry, I didn't understand your question. Well, what I'm saying is that the learning rate is a function of deployment, right? A normal yeah. learning rate. I mean, there are two ways of calculating a learning rate. So one is done on, on time. You know, every year you get a certain percentage of cost fall, right? But that's normally a simplification of a deployment effect. So you deploy a technology, and as a result of the deployment, that technology gets cheaper, yeah? And, and the annual fall is just a proxy for the learning by doing. Now, if you're saying that your model solves for adding in all of the CDR very late into the economic development of this sector, then surely that is just a bug in the model because the products can't get cheaper if no one's making them, right? You don't get a learning effect if you're not learning anything because you're not doing anything, right? Well, no. So, so like these systems just like take time to to build up, and so this is why like it builds up slowly in the beginning, and it builds up faster and shows like some kind of like learning curve and like deployment curve of CDR. The reason also, like the other reason why it just like shifts these burdens into the future is just like high discount rates. So it just becomes cheaper by by design in the sense that the discount rate just uh, makes these costs appear a lot smaller to 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 the optimization routine in the model and so it's just like by design mitigation now no not cdr deployment but mitigation now like i don't know we reducing our stuff we decarbonizing our economies really fast is to some degree offset by the promise of having negative emissions available in the far future like 2050 and beyond and so we allow for overshooting in, in the models. And this is basically driven by this like economic outlook that uses discount rates to compare the costs over the century. Okay. So what you're saying is that the fundamental quandary is that if you have to remove a certain amount of carbon dioxide from your system, then there's two ways of doing it. So you can either do it now, or alternatively, you can put your money in a bank earn some interest on your money and possibly, depending on how your learning rate set up, wait for carbon dioxide removal to become cheaper and then start doing it. And then you have some transient warming and then you suck all of the carbon dioxide out of the air later on in some future time when perhaps you might be dead and your children or grandchildren might be doing it, right? That's the fundamental quandary that we're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the fundamental trade-off here. And so just like to be fair here, like even with CDR, the Paris goals in the models assume really, really steep mitigation curves way more than we are doing now. So so the models tell us we have to like do so much more, even if we assume CDR. So but this curve would only get steeper if we would limit CDR reliance. Okay. But let me return to the thing about let me return to the thing about the learning rate, because the learn it's actually quite fundamental. So the idea being if you defer if you defer the deployment of CDR until it becomes cheaper, then if you're only one person in the market, that kind of makes sense, right? So for example, if I want a really big, powerful computer, it might make sense for me to wait a couple of years until that computer is really cheap, right? But that doesn't make sense for the market as a whole because you can't expect everything to get cheaper if no one's buying it because there's no learning that's going on to drive the learning rate. So in the model, is the model aware that there has to be a certain level of consumption of a product before that product gets cheaper? Or is the model so stupid that no, it no, just thinks things get... That's in the model. So this is energy. Like these models are like focused on this kind of economic and technological deployment. And so they, this is what they they have in their modules. Yes. Okay. So the, 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 module, the model is aware that deployment has to happen for learning to occur, right? It's not yes. just assuming that you get learning for free. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So fundamentally, the problem is not one of the learning rates. It's one of the is one of the discount rates. So the you know people are deferring spending on on carbon dioxide removal in order to kind of get um uh it's it's a little bit like being at a party on the night before you've got to go to work and you think well you know works tomorrow I'm going to have another couple of drinks now because I'm really enjoying this party and then. As 4 a.m. draws on and it becomes too late to even go to bed, you begin to realize the folly of what you've done when you're still very drunk and it's four o'clock in the morning and you can't even get home and go to bed in the amount of time that you've got left, right? And right. What, you're, what you're saying is that we're doing something similar to this as a society where we're 
deferring, you know, we're, we're, we're enjoying the benefits of early consumption because we're valuing, fu- valuing future risks and future effects lower rate than we're valuing present experience and present effects. And we're therefore running the risk of being like a 4am drunk on the morning before they've got to go to a meeting, right? Right. And so this, this general tendency, this is general tendency in, in these kind of optimization routines. But this gets even worse when you include the possibility of negative emissions in the future, because then you just can assume that you will be able to suck out that CO2 from the atmosphere in the far future and can offset some of the present day mitigation burdens that we would have to face now. So involving CD in large scale into the models just makes this this kind of tendency worse. Okay. So how how exactly is that value system more embedded in the model than it would be in, say, a mitigation model? Is it because the mitigation model, you end up with impossibly steep drops in, in emissions and the model won't let you do that? So it knows that you have to do some kind of early mitigation, but the with a CDR model, it can can postulate a very late action on the climate problem yeah so almost like pulling your parachute when you're 50 foot off the ground as opposed to as soon as you've jumped out of the aircraft right yeah so so exactly so there are two two reasons i would say in general like why the cdr model then um is like why cdr is then deployed like the one thing is the economic one so the the models themselves to show there's some economic value attached to CDR. And the second one that you were just alluding to is that it actually makes certain climate goals feasible that were not feasible in the models beforehand. There was a certain certain development in, in these kind of models that like before the Paris Agreement, they didn't see really low emission pathways being feasible at all in the models. And then when the Paris goals came around, they were have they had to model these pathways in some way. And then they were relying on CDR in large amounts to make them feasible at all. But what I'm saying here is that there there is no direct implications from this model feasibility. And that's what model is saying as well. There's no direct um, correlation between model feasibility and real-world feasibility. And that these economic factors in including CDR in the models actually drive much of the this perception of that we have to rely on carbon dioxide removal techniques. Okay, so what, what you're saying is that... Um people realize that there are now lower geophysical limits to climate change than was the case before people previously thought that we could get to sort of two maybe even two and a bit degrees and we'd kind of be okay and then we realized somewhere in the order of about 10 years ago that actually this was really quite dangerously wrong and uh, getting even above 1.5 degrees was a bit scary and so people then come up with CDR heavy models because there's seen as being no feasible way to get there because the idea that rich Americans could not have big fat cars next year is horrific prospect which is truly terrible and we couldn't countenance that as a society that, that's that's roughly what it comes down to right yeah roughly yes don't, okay. don't one has to like add that like the CDR models they would they would not allow for SUVs not as they are driven now in the US either. Like this is not, there's no way around getting rid of. Well, so climate's now got so bad that Americans can't drive around in big fat SUVs anymore. That's apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry for that. Yeah, oh that's dreadful. Uh, so, okay, I mean, your work is your work primarily mathematical, or is it primarily written? I mean, are you making arguments, or are you solving equations? No, I'm making arguments. So I'm. Okay. having a philosophical view on, on, on the modeling. So I'm talking about the models, okay. but I don't I don't model myself. In this. Okay. So, I mean, what you're doing seems to be stating the bleeding obvious, really. I mean, these problems are not new or unrecognized, are they? I mean, people have realized that the mitigation rates required are, you know, unrealistic compared to what we, you know, it would, it would require a change in the slope of the mitigation curve, which is beyond feasible if we were to not have CDR. And and also people are well aware of the idea that the we we kind of got um, un, uh, um, uncovered liabilities for the future in that we've got no there's no money allocated in the global economy for paying for all this CDR that we claim that we're going to be using to solve the climate problem that we could have solved 20 years ago by just not driving around in SUVs, right? Yeah. So what what I'm what I'm saying here is 
in a more general sense is that, well, there are certain like value implications that come with these technological and economic assumptions that are made here. And they are actually quite interesting and they're quite important to look at because these pathways are just really influential. And so I'm analyzing here one, one certain kind of value question that arises. But what I'm saying is like one has to like make these kind of value discussions explicit because these pathways are just relied on when we when we're talking about the Paris goals and what they mean, we rely on these pathways. And so we need to be really clear of what kind of ethical assumptions are underlying these kind of pathways. And, and we so, should discuss so what, what problems are you help me understand what, what problems are you referring to? I'm not clear what you think is, you know, a miss or problematic well so what is a mr problematic is for for example like the the value judgments that i'm analyzing in this paper is that like relying on cdr just involves making a certain bet on on, on the future deployment of technology that we are not certain that we're gonna get and doing so within the pathways within the pathways that, that tell us something about what kind of carbon prices we need what kind of like end dates for fossil fuels we need Making this bet within these pathways involves shifting risks to the future, which is, from an ethical perspective, really problematic and needs to be discussed. And okay, so we... well, I mean, I, I hate the word problematic because it tends to be used by people who are pontificating on the actions of others. So, if you were an IAM modeler, I mean, that would be integrated assessment modeler modeler. So that's not a very clumsy English on my part, but. If you were in that position, what would you do tomorrow after making a cup of coffee and sitting down at your desk in front of your computer that you think is better than what they're doing at the moment? What what practical steps do you think people should be following to, um, to, to address the concerns that you are raising? Because it seems that you are making, you're kind of pointing fingers, but not making really any useful contributions to solving the problems that you're identifying. Yes. Yeah, so so what, what I'm suggesting is here, and, and I think there are developments within the IM community and within the literature that are going to this direction as well, is to be more explicit about, like having more explicit discussions about these value questions that arise uh, and Can you to give an example? aim for a greater plurality of, of model pathways. So it's just like including more pathways. And this was already the case with the 1.5 special report. There was a low energy demand scenario, which was an alternative, which is, I think, going like one of the examples of like having alternative pathways. But what, what I'm criticizing here or what others have criticized before is that CDR just played a very big role. And and, and so this is not to blame the, the modelers. They were just like using the models they have with the cap capabilities they have to answer the questions that were posed to them that were really relevant and really urgent at that time. But going forward, we just need to uh, be emphasize a greater plurality of different pathways, integrate different kinds of like modeling pathways, and to try to make transparency of these ethical implicit assumptions uh, like make them more transparent, like making making them more explicit. And I hope okay. that like my, my paper is like like a small contribution to that work. This is all. So so explain to me then how this in practical terms should be done. So you're saying that the models contain values, which you have convinced me is the case, and others have convinced me is the case, right? So I, I understand the whole idea about models embedding values, right? So you're saying that we need to be more clear and explicit about where and how. The models embed values so that we're not embedding values we don't want to embed we're making a choice about the values that we embed is that correct yes okay and can you give me an example of the kinds of values that we're embedding that we should or should not be embedding in these models can you give me an example of, of the process that you think people could or should follow that would be more appropriate or useful when it comes to embedding the right kind of values and excluding the embedding of the wrong kind of values. Yeah, so I think a nice example is, for example, in the global distribution of, of mitigation burdens. So I think this is a topic that became of more interest recently. Okay, so to, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stop you talking about that, but what do you mean by that? Like, in simple terms, I think you mean whether Indians have to stop having fridges so that Americans can have SUVs for a bit longer. Yeah. So this is this is this is yeah. This is how you would describe it. Yes, exactly. So there's a limited carbon budget, and who gets to 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 eat 
how much of it. Okay. And so fundamentally comes down to, and this is a, this is a trade-off that's made in many economies and economic decisions. So when people start introducing carbon permits, do does a central regulator have those carbon permits that third parties then have to buy? Or do you allocate them to people who are historically polluting and, and give them grandfather rights to continue the pollution that they have previously been emitting? So, for example, if you've got a steelworks, do you have to go to the government say, we would like to buy this amount of carbon credits to run our steelworks like we did last year? Or do you say, no, no, that's far too economically disruptive. We don't want to risk shutting down our steel plants. We're going to give the steel plants a load of permits. And then if people want to go and do something else in the economy, they have to go and buy the carbon permits, maybe off the people that run the steel plant. That's the fundamental trade-off that you're talking about, right? Yeah, so that's that's yeah, that's the trade-off. That's what what is like implemented in the economy on this in these pathways. You also need to assume a certain distribution of of burdens. And so, what what has been the norm for for a while was to just like globally optimize it and like just let the economy like just like let the the, the but price. what does globally optimize mean? Yeah, so it's just like you 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 mitigate where it is most cost efficient. And then you assume that afterwards you can redistribute financially what these burdens mean. But this often means, of course, that there are higher mitigation burdens arising in the global south than you would normally probably want to want to see if you would if you would negotiate it directly. But why is that why is that economically efficient? Why why would that solve in that manner? Why why does the global south adopting that mitigation burden or or, or foregoing future consumption? Why, why is that a sensible solution to the model? Because, I mean, like if, if somebody, if you've got somebody somewhere like, I don't know, Niger, where people might be emitting around one ton per annum of carbon dioxide, I, mean, I don't might have the exact figures in front of me. And then you've got somewhere like Canada, where it might be more like 15 tons, then it would seem kind of economically obvious that the, the optimal solution lies with Canadians and, and, and people from Niger consuming an amount which is more similar in in the longer term you know that those disparities don't appear to be economically beneficial and people say well you know if you're saying it's just you know it's just economics it's just just what the models inequity is not a fundamental product of economics right in that economists have always had a lot to say about inequity and if the uh, if the um economy is has a lot of inequity in it is not seen as being a fundamental optimal, fundamentally optimal solution because that inequity is um, is is costly from a utility point of view. People are lacking in the ability to gain utility, happiness in the economy because you've got some people in the economy who are over-consuming relatively, and some people in the economy who are under-consuming relatively, and uh, that you know that isn't seen as being an optimal solution for economic consumption and that's not kind of controversial or novel that's a widely understood situation in economics that that um that that, that solution is not optimal so why what why why is it this is solving in that way well well this can this is well this kind of redistribution that you were alluding to is just this is like in many models is just like constraint due to i guess like feasibility concerns of of the path that would result but what what is the what is the lack of feasibility of saying that consumption of specifically fossil fuels might trend towards a mean for all countries in you know people wouldn't assume it would necessarily happen in one or two years but canadians and people in mali consuming a similar amount in 50 years time doesn't seem beyond the wit of man so why would it why why is it why is this seen as being impossible or improbable or controversial or for whatever reason not going to happen well my, my guess is that this comes back to a certain kind of realism that is underlying these models like political realism in the sense that you can only get you you will not get countries to agree on some kind of financial transfer that is not in their own interest well it's but, not a financial transfer is it i mean you're not you're not proposing that canadians pay people in Niger or anything directly, what you're proposing is simply that people in Niger are then, you know, consuming an amount of carbon, which is commensurate with their, you know, having an equal status in the world to Canadians rather than being 
given an inferior status in the world. You're not proposing that Canadians give Malians anything. You're just proposing that Canadians stop consuming more than they are you know, reasonably in- entitled to. So where's the, contra- where's the controversy in that? I don't quite understand that. Well, you like if you optimize consumption levels globally, you you would get such a result because they're just different um, levels of um, like you're just on different different spectrums of the elasticity elasticity curve. So you can consumption there would just mean more welfare, and so this is what the model would actually suggest. But they but this is actually constraining a lot of the models. But I guess like we this is like now really in detail with like specific aspects of the models that I'm. I'm not totally kind of like um, yeah co- confident to, to discuss these details, but you were asking me before what what I was suggesting that that like IAM modeling should do in the future and in relation to these regional distributions, you're just like doing these kind of feasibility analysis of climate goals. You just need to assume some kind of principle of distributing the burdens. And what I'm suggesting is to make this more explicit. So this is one example of where you can kind of like make the assumptions of how to distribute the burdens with how to meet the climate targets to make these principles explicit, model them explicitly. And this has been done in in the past few years a lot more. And I think this is a very nice development of making certain like policy choices that you need to address explicit and not mask them in, in, in pathways. Okay, give, give me examples. I mean, I know I keep drawing you for details, but that's what we're here for, right? We want to yeah, understand yeah. the details. Sure. So, what if I'm a modeler? Then what do I what do I actually do? You know, I might say, well, look, your your work is great. I really want to implement what you're doing. So, tell me what I need to change. Yeah, like for 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 example, one one could integrate different like regional carbon budgets into the models, and then like like present what kind of results would would arise. If we, for example, like kind of go, make going forward a per capita distribution of the carbon budget, then like put this explicitly into the models because this would seem fair to some people, and then like model this and then show the results or like model something that has some historic responsibility and show like is then well, what would this mean? Like what would one point five degrees okay, Celsius so, so, goal so, mean? So historic responsibility. I think what you've just told me there is to say, well, look. People in Britain, for example, who have emitted more carbon per current living capita than any other country in the world because they've been emitting for a longer period of time, because the Industrial Revolution started in Britain, have a greater kind of climate debt to the world. So instead of having extra pollution permission mid-century, you might say, well, actually, people in Britain have to emit proportionally less than people in Niger because they're historic um responsibility for climate change now i think there's a lot of problems in terms of whether that's a reasonable framing you know am i truly responsible for what my ancestors or even not ancestors might have done in 1750 because you know that was a long time ago and those uh, ancestors are a lot of people in the world not just me uh but uh, you know setting aside those considerations that's what you're suggesting that we could consider right that the people in britain which has got a historic climate debt as it were where you know britain has produced more pollution over previous centuries than other countries should kind of pay the world back by consuming less in future that's i think the concept that you're describing yes exactly and so that's so this is just an open political question of like how we should distribute the carbon budget that we still have left if we want to stay within two or 1.5 degrees celsius and so so given that this is an open question it would be really helpful to have like modeling results of different like different ethical ways of like putting such principles into place and seeing the consequence of it and then like discussing them like on in 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 yeah in, in okay in so what, what public and so, if I, so if i'm to describe in simple terms what you're saying is that you're you're saying that current modeling focuses too much on modeling existing injustices and not enough on challenging those injustices by modeling alternative versions of the world which might be more just is that what you're describing yeah i think like in general i would i I would i would exactly say this though i have to like say there is a lot of focus now in 
integrate, as I can see it in integrate assessment modeling of like opening up to more justice related issues and being more explicit about them and including them. It's just not easy because these, like these models come from a certain history of economic optimizations that make them more, like they're, they're more ready to model CDI than they are ready to model some kind of social disruptive technologies or social or like behavioral change. But this is what, what is trying to be done. And so I think this is going okay, in so the right direction. Okay, so what you're saying then, if I might paraphrase what you've just alluded to, is that the, the models that currently run are, model, are run in a, a kind of techno-utopian kind of way. So we view changing technology as, impos- as possible, desirable, or inevitable but changing power structures or entitlements or distribution is seen as being heretical and an inappropriate subject for study in this regard. Now, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a crude and almost facetious way of describing it, but it's not far off the truth, is it? No, I think, I think it's, it's actually, actually not a bad way to exaggerate, but also like point to the problem. And I think like like these these pathways are just really important. Like we need we need this kind of knowledge because it informs us on what we actually would need to do. And so I don't need, I don't think IMs need to be all of this, like all of the possibilities there that you just alluded to, but they should be able to answer more. And I think this would be really helpful if if more okay. different kind of value positions would be represented in them. But but what you're describing is really nothing to do with IAMs, right? I mean, you're not describing a fundamental issue with IAMs you're describing a situation where IAMs are used for a purpose and you know in the same way that a policeman's truncheon can enforce the status quo by cracking it over the head of someone with a placard saying that they want society to change what you're basically saying is the IAM is a very um, similar tool it's being used by those within power structures who benefit from those power structures to model social change in a way that preserves power structures and entitlements that should be questioned, right? Yeah, well, 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 yes. So, so I mean, like, though, like, I don't know, I, I can't speak about the modelers themselves, but they, they have, like, they're trying to challenge the status quo in, in a huge way, right? Because they are challenging our our fossil dependence that we are in right now. So they are challenging the business as usual for for many years now, and they're really helpful in like challenging it. What I'm saying is though that just like the strategies that are presented in these kind of like challenges to what we are doing at the moment and showing that it's inconsistent with 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 like having a safe climate, they they should be prone to elicit more social debate on like the way forward. Okay, so so what you're saying is that modelers are that are radical in some ways, but timid in others. And the timidity of modelers is that they, while they're willing to challenge the issues of uh, technological indolence, they are unwilling to challenge fundamental social injustices in the way that the global economy is set up. And even though they might be personally willing to do so, their work is not actively modeling um, uh, a more radical reimagining of the world that has justice at its heart, right? Right, and it would be really helpful if if there would be like some broader discussions on 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 these kinds of futures, because I like I know there would be a willingness to co-produce certain scenarios with like more stakeholders and with like other other perspectives, but it's just like that there is just like not like I guess there's just like issues of like funding and like having a more like social perspective on on this kind of like on this kind of knowledge production to to make this make this happen to make this 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 feasible okay so what are the barriers to what you're describing why is what you want to happen not happening is it because people in these modeling communities don't get paid for doing this do they have to win a bid for funding that they don't get what what is it that is holding this back so so i'm a philosopher so i have like very little empirical knowledge and i'm like speculating wildly i think there is i think it's just not the incentive structure is not not there funding wise to like do this but also i guess like i can just like speak about ethicists or like philosophers like ethicists like there are a lot of people that are not willing to engage with these kind of scenario because there's just like very like there's just different disciplines that work 
on their own topics in their own way. And so it probably would be useful, but it's very vague to say this, to have more interdisciplinary projects going on. And I noticed this is happening now more and more. And probably it's very hard to do, um, but this would be really, really helpful. So, so where, what isn't happening at the moment and why? What, what is it precisely that you think should be done and isn't being done? Or, or who is, who is you know, not contributing that could be contributing or who is excluded from the process that, that shouldn't be excluded? What, where, where, are, where are the barriers that you are, um, uh, you know, and I want specifics. It's all very well pointing out the problems, but if you don't have solutions, then your your contribution is just uh shouting from the sidelines as opposed to getting down and addressing the issues right right well so the one 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 like thing that i think is would be really helpful and and like as i said it's it's being done but it's just like um it's not i think could be done more is co-producing scenarios with, with different group of stakeholders, discussing them with the public, okay, okay. collaborating on them, and like also having like ethicists and social scientists involved in creating them. Um, okay, so the, the, the IAM people need to get out of their ivory towers, go and talk to some people who are affected by their decisions, work with people across different disciplines, and build some IAMs that uh, have a broader range of potential solutions, some of which embrace solutions which are more built around justice than the current scenarios right that's your kind of summary yeah that's my summary now I, I actually would think that a lot of like modelers would like to do this more but it's just like there's of course like not not the blame only on them but there's like a broader broader issue probably with such okay. a so you're saying that the academic and uh, knowledge generation process tends to favor uh, marginal changes to the status quo so you're fundamentally, what you're talking about here is like an Overton window of IAMs. So people are discussing an IAM landscape where they are they're permitted to debate fiercely within a narrow window of possibility. But that narrow window of possibility is so narrow that it excludes a lot of basic and fundamental issues of justice that are therefore expunged from the debate because they deemed to be too radical right right yeah and i mean like so my paper is a contribution i hope it's a contribution uh, to towards like engaging with the models and like discussing certain value aspects and like making them more transparent and like kind of like maybe like also just giving some some suggestions of what 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 could be done in the future and it's i think it's so it's just like this one aspect so what I just want to say now is that it's not, it's also not very easy. Like I found that it's not easy to say what exactly the value positions involved. And there are disagree, there can be a lot of disagreements with my arguments or with my analysis here too. So like making value judgments transparent as I am proposing is a complicated process where you need, like, this is maybe one paper where like a little contribution, but there's a lot of debate that needs to happen because it's not clear cut what kind of value positions are involved and how you would model different value positions. But it's like it needs this interdisciplinary dialogue and also public engagement to a certain degree to make this to make this happen. Okay. So what you're saying is that you're pointing out very obvious problems. You're also not coming up with solutions. That is frustrating termination to your uh to this podcast is uh, summarizing uh something which would be it's 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 not wrong but it's it's a somewhat unsatisfying end because you are uh organizing a statement on what we already know as opposed to really presenting a solution that we could enact you're basically kicking the can down the road to, to academics and professionals beyond the field to say, you know, here's a problem that you kind of know you had to solve, and we're telling you now that you've got to solve it. You knew you had to solve it already, but uh, I'm pointing out in a more organised and disciplined fashion now that you've got to solve this, but I'm not telling you what the solution is. You're going to have to work it out for yourself. That, that is pretty much what you're saying, right? That's pretty much what I'm saying, and it's been very obvious already, yes. How, how, how incredibly frustrating and teasy you you are being in this paper so well uh, thanks for coming on obviously we've got to give you our traditional reviewer to rejection that's uh, that's going to come because you have pointed out all the problems we already knew about 
give us none of the solutions we need. And worst of all, you're a massive commie who thinks that Americans shouldn't be driving around in big SUVs just so people in Niger can have luxury fridges that they don't need. So be gone with your socialist value systems. We will not have them on our podcast. And when you've sorted yourself out and recognised that the solutions to global climate breakdown do, in fact, come by everybody else bearing the burdens of endlessly greedy American consumers, then you'd be quite welcome to come back and tell us how your techno-economic optimism will save us from climate breakdown without any of your namby-pamby justice nonsense. But in the meantime, farewell, a slightly reluctant well-wishing for you. And uh, I will hope that you enjoy your commie way somewhere in a quiet corner, somewhere where it doesn't inflict on the enjoyment of people who have to drive fast cars to be happy. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for bearing my existence. Yes, thanks. (laughs)